Well, good evening, everyone. I'm so glad to welcome you to our fabulous five summer teaching series. Our study this summer will be in Titus, one of the pastoral epistles. And uh, let me just lead us in a word of prayer to get started. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that we have a book of Titus to uh, study and to go through. But Lord, we pray that the book of Titus would go through each of us, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ as we see wonderful truth in this little book. Lord, give us a sense of uh, peace that we could contribute our ideas and questions and a sense of peace that we could read the word aloud when the opportunity presents. And we just pray that we'd have a great evening in your word tonight. Thank you for each one who's here. Bless each person and each family they represent, Lord. And we ask this for your namesake and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So I would like to start by letting you know that Pastor Titus was ministering to a church as a pastor on an island, the island of Crete. Crete is in the Mediterranean Sea, and it is 160 miles by 35 miles. New Providence is 21 miles by 7, right? So Crete is bigger. So quickly, sort of popcorn style, what are the dynamics of living on an island? Whether you lived in ancient Crete or you now live on New Providence, what are some factors about living on an island? Small, intimate, uh, you know each other, uh, don't travel very much unless you have a boat. Um, anything else? Fishing. Fishing? Yes. So Pastor Titus is pastoring a church on an island. And that's something that we can kind of keep in the back of our mind. Uh, Titus, Pastor Titus was a Gentile. And uh, he'd come to faith in Christ, and now he's given a leadership, servant leadership role in the church um, there on Crete. He was a young man. Although he was young in years, he was experienced. And he was particularly experienced with Judaizers. Can anybody tell us what a Judaizer is? Nice, loud voice. What is a Judaizer? Follow the Jewish law. Yes, it's a Christian, often, who follows the Jewish law. Um, in some ways we have, again, I could get in trouble, but uh, Judaizers perhaps in the Seventh-day Adventist church that takes the Old Testament law and superimposes it on the church age and on themselves as believers. Um, we don't do that at Calvary Bible Church. We understand there are economies, different economies, and we live in the age of grace. But Judaizers in particular back then said that unless you adhered to Jewish law, you really weren't right with God. You could trust Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, but if you weren't circumcised as a male, then you really weren't in full standing with God. Or if you, if you didn't have certain dietary uh, disciplines, if you're trusting Jesus as Savior, they would say, well, you're not really there yet because you're not following Jewish law. And so although Titus was a young pastor, 
he was uh, acquainted with that kind of erroneous thinking. Now, I'd like us to read through tonight's focus is just the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And I just like a reader for each of the 12 verses. So someone to read verse 1, a different person to read verse 2, etc. And again, if you're going to read, just read in a nice loud voice so we can hear you. And we're going to go all the way through verse 12. So who would like to read verse 1? Just go ahead. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Two, verse two. Resting in the hope of eternal life, which the ever faithful God cannot deceive promised before the world or the ages of time began. But at the proper time manifested in his world, and the proper nation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Four. Two types of faith are in common faith, embracing the peace from God and Father, Christ Jesus our Savior. For this cause left I thee in hate, that thou shouldst set in the order of things that are wanting and obey. Elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, the children are believed, but not open to the charge of watching or things of ordination. Seven. rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Eleven. Twelve. like that on a greeting card about you. All right, the first thing in verse 1 we want to look at is that Paul identified himself as a bond servant. A bond servant in the Greek is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. He was saying that I am a doulos, I am a bond servant of God. Do you remember... Um, what could happen in the Israelite law in the Old Testament if a servant served a master for six faithful years, what could happen on the seventh year? Go free. He'd be released to go free. Um, If he decided he didn't want to go free and that he could do better with the master he has had for six years, then he could choose to become a bond slave. By the ceremony for that was they pierced 
that person's ear lobe as an indication that they are a bond slave. When you were a bond slave, after you elected not to take your freedom on the seventh year, you were a bond slave for the rest of your life. And a person would only make that decision if they thought they would do better with a kindly master than uh, going free on their own. And Paul says without apology, he starts it off with a very strong first idea, I'm a bond servant of God. This is not the first time the term appears, nor is it the first time that Paul calls himself a bond servant. But a question that we need to ask ourselves, have we made that decision? Have we decided to be a servant of Jesus Christ for life? That whatever he says, we do. He says jump, we ask how high. Wherever, whenever, whatever you want me to do. It's interesting, just as an aside, if you go to Revelation 1 verse 1, could it be that so many evangelical and born-again Christians cannot understand the book of Revelation, as they tell me all the time, because what do you read in verse 1 of Revelation 1? Just nice and loud. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his service events that soon, that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to a servant to join. Thank you. Uh, the NASB that I'm using, New American Standard Bible, says uh, God gave him to show to his bondservants. So God made, a re- God made a revelation to the aged Apostle John on the island of Patmos near the end of his life to show him all that he wrote in the book of Revelation. And it kicks off the front door of Revelation as God says, I'm giving you this so you can give this revelation to bondservants. Could it be that Christians who aren't bondservants yet can't understand the book of Revelation? I'll leave you with that to think about. If you'd like to know what's involved in making that decision to be a bondservant of Christ, I would recommend Romans 12, 1 and 2 for your study on your own. To prayerfully reflect on, have I ever done this? Have I ever presented my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my reasonable service of worship, and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind, that I can approve what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So that is not a, I think I've done that. That is, I know I've done that. Either you know you've done that, or you haven't done that. <laughs> you can't say, ah, I may have done that. No, if, you, if you're not sure, you haven't done it. Okay? And God's Word calls us all to be bondservants. It's not that pastors, missionaries, uh, deacons are the bondservants in the church. No, the normal Christian life is that we are bondservants of the, of the risen Christ. We want a whole church of bond servants. Children, good to have the children here tonight. Children can make themselves bond servants of Jesus at a tender age, and that's a great way to pray for your children if they're still young. Now it says in, he also says that he's an apostle. Uh, if we go to Acts chapter 1, an apostle is a very specific kind of person, according to the scriptures. We should always let the scripture define scriptural terms, right? Apostle is a 
scriptural term, and we must let the Bible interpret the Bible. So when someone gets Acts 1, verse 21, would they please read it nice and loud? So what's going on here in context is they're recognizing that Judas Iscariot was a phony, that he wanted the money, he wanted Jesus to deliver them politically, but not from sin. And uh, we know he hung himself after he betrayed our Lord for just a paltry sum of money that was equivalent to what the Old Testament said a slave should be bought for. Verse 22. There it is. There it is. What the Bible defines an apostle to be is a person who is acquainted with the public ministry of Jesus Christ for three and a half years, and more specifically, who is an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. True or false, the Apostle Paul was an apostle. True. When did he see the resurrected Christ? On the road to Damascus, exactly. So Paul was an apostle. He was acquainted with the three-and-a-half-year public ministry of Christ, and he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ in Acts chapter 9. So I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when I drive by churches that talk about apostles, I, I assume they're empty because there are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. Ed is going, woo, which is the Bahamian amen, I'm told. Yes. Yes. Why? Because no one on earth today was walking shoulder to shoulder with the Lord Jesus for three and a half years. And no one on earth today was a literal witness of his resurrected body in him. Forgive me for asking. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's this is what we're all about. I'm glad you asked. All right, so what's the first thing that Paul identified himself as being in Titus 1? One? A bond servant. A doulos. What's the second thing he identified himself as being? An apostle. All right, let's go on. In verse 1 1, it says, uh, Paul, the bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. Will you notice it's the faith? Grammatically, that's called an article. The is an article. It means that the noun with the the is a specific thing, it's not a faith. It's the faith. Now, when Prince Charles thought he was going to be made king, well, that, that hopes out the window a long time ago for him. But when he thought he was going to be king, he said that he would be a defender of our faith. No, he didn't say the faith. He said our faith. He said without the article, he was going to defend our faith. All faiths. That's a problem. 
So here it's not a faith, it is the faith. Why don't we skip down to um, verse 1, the knowledge of the truth. There are two Greek words for knowledge. One is gnosko, and one is epigonosko. Gnosko is knowledge you have by relationship. So I have uh, gnosko knowledge of my lovely wife. We've lived together as husband and wife for 32 years. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. I know when she rises. I know when she usually retires for bed. I know what she cooks the best. I know what she likes to eat the best and so forth. We have a gnosko knowledge between us because of relationship. By the way, do you see the private school on uh, Shirley Avenue? Gnosko. The private school is called Gnosko. I thought, that's interesting. But anyway... That's not the kind of knowledge here. The kind of knowledge here is not gnosko, relationship knowledge. It is epigonosko. Epigonosko is an aha, aha, I didn't know that before, flash of knowledge. Like, man, I like beets. Actually, I don't like beets at all. I guess the first time I ate beets, my epigonosko moment was, I don't like beets. Paul is saying that he is a bondservant, he is an apostle, so people, not just in Crete, but people will have an aha moment about who Jesus is. And I hope that's our life's mission, that when people meet us, they don't come away going, boy, that Rob Elliott, he's really impressive. I hope they meet Rob Elliott and go, boy, Rob Elliott's savior is impressive. There's a difference with that, isn't there? So he's saying, I'm a bond slave, I'm an apostle for the epigenoso knowledge of the truth according to godliness. Epigenosco is that aha moment about the truth defined by the scriptures, but then he says, according to what? According to godliness. How many of you have computers? Everybody. What operating systems do your computers have? Just call out your operating system. Windows 7. What else? Your operating system is how your computer processes information, stores information, etc. It's your computer is according to your operating system. When we moved to this beautiful island, we soon learned that people drove according to a law that you drive on the left side and not on the right. This is saying that Paul wants people to have an aha moment about the defined truth in what regard? The operating system is godliness. There was a friend of ours at Schofield Memorial Church, uh, Miss Brenda. You have a Schofield Reference Bible, which is a wonderful study Bible. I recommend that. C.I. Schofield was a lawyer who set out to disprove their, that God existed, sort of like Lee Strobel did as a newspaper journalist in Chicago. Well, 
Mr. Schofield became a born-again Christian. So did Lee Strobel become a born-again Christian in this century. But the point I'm trying to make is that my friend, we had a, a friend, the pastor's daughter of Schofield Memorial Church, her husband was studying at Dallas Seminary when Beth and I were studying at Dallas Seminary. So he was acquainted with the truth. He should have had an operating system of godliness. But do you know what he frequently would do before he left the house to go teach a Bible study in a home? He'd beat his wife up. He knew that this man knew the truth of God's word, but he didn't live it accordingly, as according to godliness. And that's a danger for all of us. We can get more, more learned in our minds than it winds up being in our hearts. We can be educated in the Bible beyond our obedience to the Bible, and that's dangerous. So what we've got here is he's a bondservant, he's an apostle, to give aha moments about a defined body of truth and to do it so that body of truth will become the operating system of all the people he's working with. Second verse. Let's have somebody read verse 2 over again. In the hope of eternal life. Dr. Dwight Pentecost lived to be over a hundred, and he was a beloved professor at Dallas Seminary. And he taught me that biblically, hope is desire plus expectancy. If you have both desire and expectancy, you have hope. But if you only have one, not the other, you do not have hope. Let me illustrate. Frankly, tonight I desire to have a full head of hair like Pastor Jerry. I have that desire, but I don't expect it'll happen. That's so I have no hope. Further, I also expect that college tuitions will only go up with our daughter in the fall and then when J.D. goes to college a few years later. T college tuitions will only go up. I expect that, but I don't desire that, so I don't have hope. When you have desire plus expectancy, you have biblical hope. So when we go to a funeral of a believer and the scriptures are read and the prayers are offered and you realize that that believer became absent from the body to become present with the Lord, it stirs in me when I go a hope for heaven. I desire heaven and I expect to go to heaven based on the merits of Christ. That's hope. So Paul is saying that he's trying to impart the truth, which is according to the operating system of godliness, but in the hope, the desire, and the expectation of eternal life. Now let me ask you this. Is there a difference between everlasting life and eternal life? Or are they the same? The same? Everlasting life and eternal life. 
Let's let me just uh, look at it this way. Everlasting life is a life that starts at a point and then goes without end. Eternal life, that's Christ's life, that's God's life. Does that have a beginning? Does it have an ending? So everlasting life has a beginning and no ending. So really, this might rock your boat, people are born with everlasting life. They have a starting point in life at conception, and they are going to live forever, whether it's in heaven or hell. Fair? That's everlasting life. Eternal life is not the same. Eternal life is God's life. Go with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. I want someone to read Colossians 3, verse 4, when they get it. Colossians 3 and verse 4. Amen. Christ is your life. Is real to the world of the whole world. You will share it. So when Christ, who is our life. So have you ever thought of that? Jesus Christ is your Savior. Jesus Christ is your Lord. But Jesus Christ is also your life. Your life. And what is Jesus Christ's life? It's eternal life. Without a beginning and without an end. Why is this important? Because when we trust Christ and we're given Christ's eternal life to be our life, then Christ's future is our future. Christ's past is our past. You say, what? Christ's past is my past? Well, look at verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's writing to the church at Colossae, and they're not dead yet, at least not physically. Have they been resurrected yet? Not literally. But their life is hidden with God in Christ, and so Christ's past becomes their past. What does that look like? Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ in a past tense. So here's the situation. We are going to have uh, water baptisms as soon as we can, as God raises up people who want to be baptized. And when I baptize someone uh, by immersion in water, the only way I baptize, I say, buried with him through baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. That is a visual picture of the spiritual reality that they have been placed into Christ already, invisibly, and we're making it visible. So is that clear enough or any questions? Desire for eternal life, expectancy for eternal life, Christ is life, eternal life. All right. Verse 3. Someone read that nice and loud. Titus 1, 3. But as in due time, 
but has in due time manifested his work in the preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Thank you. His, it's been manifested even his word. One of the strongest uh, assets of Calvary Bible Church is that you have taken the middle word in your name seriously for over 50 years. Calvary Bible Church. The Bible has been the believers who call this their church's final authority. The Bible has been their inspired, inerrant guide to wisdom and godly living. That's a tremendous strength, especially when we start listening to what's happening in this culture and the U.S. culture where churches are departing from the Bible to go with public opinion. Gay marriage, abortion, and things like that. So the strength, one of the big strengths of this local assembly is that we take God's word seriously. Uh, it says in, in verse 3 that Ampu read, but at the proper time manifested even in his word. God's godliness is manifested in his word. So what do you say? You've got a Christian, she's a born-again Christian, and she says that she had a vision. And you ask her what the vision was, and it's something contrary to Scripture. Well, the vision wasn't of God. The vision wasn't of God, I agree, because God's will never contradicts His Word. God's will never contradicts His Word. What if she says that it wasn't a vision, but what if she says it was her feelings? That she just feels like she's supposed to divorce her husband. She just feels like she should walk away from her family. What, what do we say? You're, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The, the, the Bible is the authoritative arbiter between personal opinion and feelings and truth. All right? So he, this is saying that he's an apostle, he's a bondservant, he's um, giving aha moments of God's truth according to the operating system of godliness with the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised years ago. John 17, 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer before the cross. He said, Father, sanctify them with the truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus' prayer was that you and I would study the Bible. Jesus is very pleased that over 50 people are here tonight on a Wednesday night who could be doing other things to study the Bible. God is pleased because that's what sets us apart for God's possession and use, and that's what sanctify means, to set apart for God's possession and use. In our home, uh, Beth shares everything uh, with our family except towels that are set out for company. 
if we're having company, don't use the towels in the restroom. That's for company. Those towels are sanctified. (laughs) They are set apart for not God's possession and use, but the company's possession and use. God, the normal Christian life, is that we are progressively, increasingly being set apart for God's possession and use. So young guys, kids, when you go to school, I know you're homeschooled, but when young people go to school and other kids are treating other kids poorly, when you know Christ the Savior and you say, stop that, leave her alone, you are showing that you've been set apart for God's possession and use. And uh, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing, whether we're young or whether we're old. All right, let's go ahead to look at verse 4. Would someone please read verse 4? I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith, that we should. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Thank you. What kind of child does Paul call Titus? Does that imply there must be false children? People who can talk the talk, no Christian jargon, might be sitting in our pews for years, who are not true children of God. So he says, Titus, you're my true child. He calls him my because he had the joy of leading Titus to Christ. My true child in a common faith. I think about a less than true child of God who was drunk and on the sidewalk in Chicago when D.L. Moody was alive and ministering God's word in that city. And D.L. Moody was walking down the sidewalk and the drunk looked up and knew who it was and said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. And Mr. Moody said, yet you must be one of mine because you're not one of Christ's. There are false children of God. They are professors of Christ, but not possessors of Christ. Will you notice that Titus is Paul's child in a common faith. It's a shared faith. It's a defined faith. It's a revealed faith. We have a doctrinal statement as a local church, and all the people who want to become members of this local church have to agree with the doctrinal statement. We don't play fast and loose with what the Bible teaches. And we have a common faith that's been revealed in the scriptures, that's objective and not subjective. It's not based on what we feel. It's based on what is observed and interpreted properly. It's verifiable. It's not feelings. And because Titus was recognized by Paul to be a true child in a common faith, it meant that Titus could be called to account. I haven't been in the Bahamas long enough to know, but I'll tell you what it's like in Canada, and I'll tell you what it's like in the U.S., that when a Christian 
looks at becoming a member of a local church, they shy away because they don't want anybody to, to have to have the right to question their lifestyle. And one of the fundamental prerequisites to becoming a member of a church, in my opinion, is that you believe the doctrine and you say, I'm willing to come under the pastoral care of the spiritual servant leaders of that church. So when a person becomes a member of this church and they start to go off the track into sin and we come alongside and say, excuse me, I think you're off the track. Can we talk? Can I show you God's word to why you're off the track? Could we have lunch together? Could I study the Bible with you together? Could I help you get back on the track that the person doesn't say, mind your own business. Who are you? I've had a Christian I tried to do that with say, don't play the Holy Spirit in my life. I said, what if the Holy Spirit sent me? What if the Holy Spirit sent me? So, when a person says, I want to become a formal member of Calvary Bible Church, they're saying, I agree with the doctrine of the church. They're saying that I will come under the pastoral care of provided for me because I know it's in my best interest and for love. And the third thing I would say is that when a person says, I'm becoming a member of this church, that you find a ministry that uses your spiritual gift and you start serving God. Uh, the church should be like the space shuttle, all crew and no observers. The space shuttle has no observers. If you're in the space shuttle, you have a job and you've got to do it. Members who come into this church need to know that we expect you to have a ministry. We'll help you find a ministry. We'll help you discover your spiritual gifts. But you're going to do something. You're not going to be a pew warmer if you're a member. Well, you know I feel strongly about it by what I'm saying. I think we've long enough, and again, I can't say the Bahamas, I haven't lived here long enough, but the evangelical church in Canada and America has long enough put up with freeloader members. And so the people who are committed to working have too many ministries each, and they burn out, and they start talking like, I've got to go to Awana instead of I get to go to Awana. There's a difference. We need to have a ministry, not just a seat in a pew. Now, verse 4. Someone please read verse 4. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Grace and peace. Do you think it ever says in Scripture, peace and grace? It doesn't. Do you know why? Grace has to precede peace. You can't have peace unless you first have grace. You can't. You can't have peace until you first have grace. Grace that saves you, gives you the Spirit of God, gives you the fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace. So grace always precedes peace. If you look at all the salutations of all the Pauline letters, 
Grace always comes before peace. Peace never comes before grace. Someone read verse 5. True or false, there's one assembly on the island of Crete. True or false, there's one assembly on the island of Crete at this point. False, because he's to appoint elders in every city. True or false, there was to be one elder in each city. Appointed elders, plural. So one of the things that attracted me greatly to Calvary Bible Church is that you have a multiplicity of elders or pastors. I'm really not interested in pastoring a church that doesn't have colleagues in it who are spiritual servant leaders with me. Because I need their ideas. The pastors that are here continue to be a tremendous blessing to me and Beth because they help us understand the church. To love you and to know you and to help you and to serve you better because the pastors help us. That's one of the strongest things about Calvary Bible Church. When I heard that you had nine pastors, and all of them, I believe, were raised up from within the men of this church, I thought, <laughs> they've got something. And I'm trusting that God will raise up more godly men to be pastors in the future from within our church. So he tells them to... Set in order. You know what that tells me? <laughs> that churches left to themselves get to be disordered. <laughs> you leave a church to itself, and the people can be very well-meaning, but they will become disorderly. So he says, I'm going to leave you to set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Now we're going to move into what are the biblical qualities, qualifications of an elder. Verse 6, somebody. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So the first verse for qualifications of an elder is that a man is to be above reproach. That means no unresolved accusation. I'm acquainted with a spiritual leader who had an accusation against him that was unfounded. And he had that resolved in proper channels. He is therefore above reproach. That's what it means. To be above reproach is to have either no accusations against or to have no unresolved accusations against. Now verse 6 is uh, controversial. Um, the husband of one wife. The first thing that I have to tell you is that means that pastors are to be male and not female because I don't know how a female could be the husband of one wife. So pastors are to be male and the Greek here is a one woman kind of man. A pastor 
is, if married, to have eyes only for his own wife. Not to enter into counseling arrangements with someone else who's not his wife without checks and balances. Um, not to visit a parishioner, a female parishioner, without um, another person along, just to be above reproach. The husband of one wife. A one-woman kind of man. And then it says that this person should have children who believe. That is, I take that to mean children who are born again. Now, children is technoi. Technoi means a less than fully mature child. The way I tend to define that is that a person is a less than fully mature uh, adult and therefore a technos if they don't have a job that can support them, they don't have their own place to live, and they haven't picked their own local church. When a person has their own job to support them, has their own place to live that they can afford, and has picked their own local assembly to be a part of in active ministry, then they are no longer a child, they are an adult. And so this is saying that if you have children who are still under your roof and still considered technoi, then they should have saving faith. They should be saved. And you say, okay, there's a man who fits all the qualifications to be an elder in a local assembly, but one of his children is not yet saved. Then I say, pray for the child's salvation and wait before you nominate him. Then it says that the, his children should not be accused of dissipation. Uh, dissipation means insubordination. A man's child still at home should not be chafing at the bit and bucking against the authority that God has put into his or her life, which is dad, Christ, dad, mom. So that's dissipation, insubordination, and then rebellion. That's pretty clear. Rebellion means rebellion. <laughs> it means uh, that a pastor can't be expected to be used of God to bring a rebellious congregation in line if he can't bring a rebellious child in line. Apparently, rebellion was a hot button at the church at Crete. Because look at verse 10, skip ahead. Someone read verse 10. Those of the circumcision are the Judaizers we talked about earlier. Apparently rebellious guys got into the church at Crete and they needed to be dealt with. All right, and then in verse 7, someone read verse 7. Thank you. So this is a second mention of not of being above reproach. Verse seven. He's called God's steward. A steward is a manager, 
a caretaker, you might say a watchdog, a protector, a servant. We went to the restaurant on um, near uh, Arawak, the Western Esplanade. We went to a restaurant there, and they had valet parking. And as I give the keys of the SUV to the young man, I'm thinking, he is a steward of this vehicle. <laughs> and I hope he will take his stewardship responsibilities very, very seriously. And he did. Everything was fine. Some of you have trusted employees that maybe maintain your swimming pools or your lawns or clean your houses, and you trust them to be on your property when you aren't. They are stewards of your trust. If they're cleaning your house when you're not there, then you are trusting them not to steal anything. Right? So this is saying that an elder should be God's steward. He should handle the gospel with care. He should handle God's flock with care. That's what a good pastor does. And not pugnacious. What does pugnacious mean? Argumentative, put up your dukes, uh, always looking for a fight, always willing to have a fight, aggressive. God's elders, pastors aren't to be that way. And then it says not fond of sordid gain. What would sordid gain be? Dishonest gain. Yeah, do what it takes to make money. Cut the corners ethically, run over people, exploitive, exploitive uh, money earned. You know, putting others down to get yourself up. Yes, it is. Because merchandising, this is not against capitalism. This is not a distribu equal distribution of wealth. But merchandising is purchase. I take you mean this purchasing a good. No. No, excuse me. Making, making merchandise of God's people. Making merchandise of God's people. Oh, okay. Making merchandise of God's people. Now I understand. Where, where basically an under shepherd views each person in the congregation as an ATM. That is sordid gain. That is sordid gain. And a, and a pastor, to be qualified, is not to be that. God is not against wealth. God is not against material wealth. There are people in the scriptures that were very wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea, that gave his burial tomb to the Lord Jesus. I've seen that burial tomb, and it would have cost a lot of money. It was hewn out of limestone. Joanna. We named our daughter Joanna after Joanna in the scriptures who supported Jesus' public ministry out of her material things. She was a financial supporter of the Lord Jesus. So God is not against material wealth, but the question God asks is, do you have the wealth or does the wealth have you? Money is a good servant when it's brought under the lordship of Christ, but it's a lousy master. 
Because like the bumper sticker said, the best bumper sticker on greed I've ever seen said, greed is not enough. Think about that. Greed is not enough. That's it. Greed is the person saying, whatever I have is not enough. Whereas Scripture teaches us contentment, doesn't it? In 1 Timothy 6. All right, verse 8, uh, please. Thank you. I think that's pretty straightforward uh, to be lovers of people to come into your home, whether it's for an evening or a breakfast or an overnight, whatever the case might be, and loving what is good and sensible and being just and being devoted to Jesus Christ and his church and being self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. There it is, the faithful word. It's not a faithful word. It's the article the faithful word. That makes the word defined and consistent to all the other labels on it that we've seen already in this passage. Holding fast to the faithful word. How many of you have heard of Tony Campolo? Tony Campolo, Beth actually had him as a, a professor back in the 70s. Um, at Eastern College on the outside portions of Philadelphia. Tony Campolo for years has been a Bible teacher, preacher, college professor that has been taught the Word of God for what it said. Well, recently Tony Campolo's son came out as being gay. That happens. But Tony Campolo has reversed his conviction about homosexuality. He's not holding fast to the Word. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to love and to um, have unconditional love for a child who declares to be a homosexual, but it's quite something else to publicly teach that you believe the Bible says now that homosexuality is fine. All right. And also you can see holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Same thing. There's a defined body of truth. And then in case we miss it, sound doctrine. Verse 9. There's so many terms and so many labels for this idea that there's a defined faith. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for personal interpretation. It is clear. It is unchanging. What is true about God's Word will be true about God's Word until Christ comes back for the church, and it's been true about God's Word all the way back in church history. God's truth doesn't evolve. It doesn't modify. It doesn't change. So it really behooves us to know what this book says is truth. Right? We have to know what the book says about homosexuality to know what the truth is about that. We have to know what the book says about money to know what the truth about that is. We need to see what the book says about lust so we know the truth about that. All right. It says in verse 9 that 
exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. Um, ever had to refute someone over the truth? I see some people uh, nodding. If you had to refute someone about the truth, could you just call out what the issue was? Misrepresentation. Misrepresentation. The concept or notion that the Bible is outdated. Yes. Something else you had to refute? A person wanting to leave his wife and probably somehow justifying the concept. Yeah. And gaining wealth through a dishonest um, proposition. Okay, so a person seeking to be wealthy or, or to gain a lot of money through a dishonest um, enterprise. I think the longer you live as a Christian, the more refuting you have to do. I know that's true. And we ought not to back away from the need to refute. We need to prayerfully uh, go toward that for the love and the good of the other person. And then we talked about rebellion being a reoccurring problem at Crete. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. Uh, they have, in that time space, they had a culture of bucking authority. Uh, do we have a culture of bucking authority in the Bahamas? Do we have a mindset that the police really aren't doing that good a job and do we pray for them or just criticize them? Um, the tendency to buck authority is part of our flesh. It's as easy as falling off a log. We'll go to that default position very quickly if we don't let the Spirit of God control us. And one of the best ways not to buck authority is to pray for authority. To pray for authority. Now what does it say in verse 10? There were a lot of rebellious guys, but what else were there? Empty talkers. <laughs> Empty talkers. These guys and women, they were idle. They didn't have work to do, so they just shot their mouth off. They just talked to hear themselves talk. They talked about speculations. You know why I think she said that? How could you know why she said that? That's gossip. How could you know why anybody does anything? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? How can I know your heart? I don't even know my own heart. By the way, my vote for the most misquoted and misinterpreted verse of the Bible is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's talking about don't judge someone's motives. You can't do that. But that's not saying that when someone lies, you can't say, you just lied. Don't judge me. Well, I, 
God is judge. I, I can't be a judge. Pardon? Sin is sin. We can't judge anybody's motives, but we can judge what's sin. <laughs> and we better. All right. Um, verse 10, now talking about the uh, those of the circumcision. That's another way of saying these Judaizers that welded together uh, faith in Jesus Christ, grace, salvation with the keeping of the Jewish law. Got to keep the Jewish law. You can't just trust in Jesus alone. You got to keep the Jewish law. You put them together, then you'll be all right. So there was a problem with rebellious people on Crete. There was a problem with Judaizers on Crete. And then what does it say in verse 11 about these Judaizers and these rebellious empty talkers? <laughs> yeah. What would happen if someone's shooting their mouth off to you in an ungodly way and you just said, silence? That would uh, make them not know whether to spit or wind their watches. If you just looked at them and said, I don't want to hear anymore. They're to be silenced. In um, Matthew 18, when God, Jesus Christ, gives the protocol, the steps for church discipline, do you remember what the last step is? If they don't listen to the one that goes, they don't listen to the two or three that go, what are they to do? Yeah, but what are we to do? You tell, I've had this happen in pastoral ministry a lot. The person who's been offended and sees the sin goes and says, you just offended me by sinning. And if they don't repent, then that person comes back and we get two or three witnesses and we go, you know, when you did that to him, you offended him and you sinned. And if they don't repent, treat them like a Gentile and a tax gatherer. They didn't have Gentiles and tax gatherers over for coffee cake. They didn't go to Starbucks with those guys. They had nothing to do with them. If they saw a Gentile or a tax gatherer going down the street, they went to the other side of the road. Why? So that they would know they're out of fellowship. There's a serious breach of fellowship with Jesus and a serious breach of fellowship with Jesus' people. So that's how you silence them. Say if you have a brother or sister and they, you know, you're all in business, you're all in business together, and you went through the Matthew 18. That's a good question. Ed's asking, what about in a uh, closely tight knit island? where uh, family members sometimes go into business together, and I take it, say, theoretically, one of the family members falls into sin, the discipline of the church is exercised according to the steps, and they don't repent. What do you do? Well, I'll tell you, I had a family member in my family who would not repent, and I didn't speak to her for 20 years. What well, about, um, okay, I, no, 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 I, well, I know what you're supposed to do. Okay? But then you, you are in a church and you know things going 
strange, but even the persons who lead, you know, they, they seem to not give recognition to the problem, you know, it's like, you know, well, we say la vie, say la vie. Okay, Ed's asking, what happens if uh, the leaders of a local assembly don't have the intestinal fortitude to exercise church discipline and they just go on, let life be life. Uh, well, um, those church leaders are probably in for a spanking from God. And I, I don't know when, but th those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so if you, it's a high responsibility to be a servant leader and a preacher, pastor in an assembly, to know what the Word of God says is a remedy to sin and you're unprepared to do it. That is a serious problem. Serious. And so, it wasn't easy to not have contact with this family member for 20 years. It wasn't easy. I didn't take any joy in it. But the fact I wasn't at Christmas when that person was there reminded that person there's something wrong. Now, they were angry at me at first that they said, yeah, you're, you're what's wrong. But the Spirit of God brought them around 20 years. Well, well, that is, um, how do I say that? We can't take part of Matthew 18 and say, that's the revealed will of God. I'll do the first step. I'll do the second step. But when it says the third step, treat them as a Gentile and tax gatherer, and you know that that means you don't interact then I don't think it's unchristian. I think it would be unchristian to pretend it didn't happen. Am I understanding you to say that you agree that if someone that's in the... Can you just clarify the question? Sure. Uh, in Matthew 18... The, the course that Christ prescribes is if a person offends you by sinning, you're to go to that person and to um, tell them that they've offended you by sinning against you. And if they repent, then happy story, it's all over. If they don't repent, then the next step is to take the first person who went to them and uh, one or two others and say, you know, this is the scripture. This is what you sin by not obeying the scripture. She, she's already come to you. We've come back again. Please see it God's way and repent. If the person repents, happy ending. But it says that if the person doesn't respond to that second step, then they are to be treated like a, a Gentile and a tax gatherer, which means ostracized, ostracization and no relationship. I'll read over Matthew 18, but just based on what I know in Christian living, 
Are you saying that's what you should do? You agree? Yes. No. Faithful for love. On the greatest of these is love. All the commandments, in my opinion, in the Bible, if you were to love, could not even have to be remembered. In my opinion, when you say offend, you're talking about a Christian person or not a Christian person? Christian. You're talking about a person offend, I mean... It's sin. I'm not sure. Let us let me be blunt. This is not my family member's situation. But if somebody sleeps with my wife, I'm going to go to him and tell him that he sinned. If he doesn't listen, I'm going to go with one or two other people and tell him that he sinned. If he doesn't listen, then I'm going to ostracize him. And what should happen is the body of believers, the assembly should do that too. Love. Agape is the, the love there, the highest form of love, uh, God's kind of love. Agape love discerns the greatest need in the one loved and then sacrifices to meet that need without concern for the cost or the payback. I don't see how you could leave someone in sin, rebellious sin, and really be loving them. Okay, but once again, love. If you say to someone, you point it out, I'm sorry, I don't know if everyone can hear me. If you point it out, it's the Spirit of God that convicts. Okay, so you say to someone, I don't think anybody who would have been a Christian would not know. You know, you have to be a Christian to know that Christians believe that if you commit adultery or fornication, it's sin. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. So if the person sleeps with your wife, and you say, okay, you slept with your wife, I don't know if they're denying it or not, but if it happened, it's an act that occurred. If you say to them, repent, and they choose not to, that's not your responsibility. You pointed out the sin. You should pray for that person. If you choose to not associate with them, that's on you. But you have to forgive that person. And in love, show them differently. Say to them, you know, what you've done is wrong, and I'll pray for you, and ask that the Spirit of God convicts you, and show them love. I mean, sometimes you have to love people from a distance, I understand that. But you, in my opinion, Doing that, you could never, in my opinion, bring that person to Christ through showing them love and forgiveness. That's just my view. Sure. And I, from my personal experience, know that obeying Matthew 18, 15 to 18, fully, that God brought my family member around after 20 years. Do you want to say something? Who's messing with his, 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 his father's wife? Incest? I think a lot of times we think, I mean, my children doing something, just loving them is enough. But discipline is a statement of me continuing to
But again, I still love you. And you don't ask yourself. So stay in love. I just put my child because I love my child. And I believe that's, that, that's my message to the big there is a there is a correlation in the whole same sex thing going on now, right? You have pastors who know exactly what God has said about the world. But for them to turn their back on their child. It's a hard decision. So they have actually come to the they have come to the they have come to the conclusion that that of God is not able to love their child the same way that they are able to love their child. And their hope deep down is that if I love them enough, they will change their ways. But I know that in my short history of the church, in our culture, oh, this is how we do church here. <laughs> if there's a problem, if there's a problem, first it's going to be handled along family lines. Family must be protected, regardless of what the word of God says. Secondly, can you can you hear? Preach. Put your volume up. Secondly, it's going to be handled along economic lines. No, 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 no. Something is going to happen, but we ain't going to lose out. Okay. Third, it's going to be handled along social lines. We don't want the family to lose face. And last but not least, is this person, PLP, Zephyrdam, or DNA. <laughs> okay? Now, after we solve those, we want to bring in the Bible. Yeah, for me, it's a discipleship, lordship issue that uh, the lordship of Christ, uh, bond slave that we spoke about in verse one, means that I'm obliged to do what the plain sense of Scripture says. That 
church discipline passage of Matthew 18, 15 to 18, is bathed and soaked in agape love. Agape love, again, says, I discern the greatest need in the one loved. Well, in this case, it's repentance. I discern the greatest need in the one loved, and then I sacrifice to meet that need without concern for the cost to me or the payback. Just so you know, just so maybe this will fill it in for you, that the family member was involved in homosexuality and wanted to bring partner into my home and sleep in the same bedroom. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anything other than that. So, to me it's lordship. To me it's uh, bond-slave relationship with Jesus. Um, there are tough sayings in Scripture. It's not for the, it's not for the weak-hearted. The Bible is not for the weak-hearted. And um, I just challenge you to look at Matthew 18, 15 to 18, and see you know, what you think as you read it. Yeah. And then we can come back together. And that's yeah. the same thing we need to do with one another. Right. And it's not, um, it's like there's some bankers here today. Uh, when, when the bank reconciles your account, they don't look at what you think is in your account and what they say is in your account and go, let's strike it at the middle. Let's just go for the middle. No, they say, this is what's in your account, man. You know, bring it around. Totally. Paul. I think the whole picture is that Christ wants to purify his church. He wants to have it under. And church discipline is the root of that. Because the church is responsible for the purification of the church. Sorry, God uses the church to purify his, his bride. And if we share from that responsibility, how will it be purified? How will he be glorified in the church? So we have to follow his rule to the left. And that is the first default in resolving an issue. Not how we feel or what the world says we should do, but what the word says, even if it appears logical. Yeah, or um, unpalatable. Sometimes the will of God seems unpalatable, especially regularly to the unredeemed. The unredeemed look at the Bible and what it teaches and say, I can't accept that. I won't swallow that. But sometimes God's believers say that. I can't swallow that. Um, all right, I promise to let you out at eight. So let me just skip down to the end. And on the takeaways, um, here's what I want you to take away. Um, if we don't take something away from these verses, then we are just um, eggheads. We have just come and we have just, we're just a cerebral, academic, a theoretical information thing. I've just dumped all this information on you and you've got these uh, uh, funnels 
and the information's got into your head and you walk around like your head is swollen because you got to give it out. you got to give it out. It says that in the southern United States, Rhonda and Jeff will understand this, if you put a dish of buttermilk and a piece of cornbread in the dish on your porch in Virginia in the summer, it's going to smell. Oh, yeah. And some Christians, listen to me, some Christians come to church like cornbread and they just sit there and drink in everything they're being taught and they never give it out and they stink. Just like the cornbread in, the, in buttermilk. So we don't want it to stink. Um, take away one. Be a bondservant. Check out Romans 12, 1 and 2 and make, let the Lord deal with you on that if you've never uh, responded in obedience. Number two, be a doctrine specialist. Be ready to defend it. You know, you can, this is easy now in the day we live in. There are study Bibles that you can look up, say, a, a doctrine of justification. And you can see what all the verses there that list under sanctification or justification. And you can learn theology for yourself. We need to know doctrine so we can defend it. Third, you gotta have your nose in the book. I can prepare a halfway decent meal for you twice a, twice a Sunday, 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Do my best to prayerfully do that. But if you only eat on Sunday, you're going to get weak, spiritually weak. You've got to feed yourself. The Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible lives in you if you're saved. Number four, demand godliness of yourself. Remember, that's the operating system of all this. Remember I said the seminary student who went out regularly to teach Bible studies without his wife because he beat her up before he went out the door to teach the Bible studies. Demand godliness of yourself. Ask someone to hold you accountable. That should be, it could be your spouse, sure, but it should be someone of your gender if it's not your spouse. Number five, pray Titus 1. Details for me and for all the pastors of this church, please. Write out the things that a, a pastor is to be according to Titus 1 and just pray all those things for me and for the other pastors, please. And then last, uh, be a cohesive family. Um, I didn't get to the verses that talked about the need for that. But be a cohesive family. Um, don't have electronic devices at your meal in a restaurant or at your dining room table. Don't allow electronic devices when you eat. Turn the television off. No iPhones. No headphones. I wrote the Steve Lowe family, and I, ho I hope they don't mind being a positive example, but the Steve Lowe family, and maybe others as that I don't know of, they get together every week on a certain night of the week, and the family eats together and laughs together and plays games together. That's great. I do that, but my family is in Spain this summer and Canada. So I can't play board games with them. Right? So it's been a great first, first study. I hope that you'll uh, mull over what God's been teaching you and uh, be Berean Christians, examine the scriptures to see what I've taught you is true or not. And um, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken through your word and you haven't stuttered. 
We thank you, Lord, for the joy of being your child, and we pray that the Spirit of God who indwells us as your true children would illuminate our understanding of the Word of God that he has written. I pray, Lord, for each marriage represented in the you. I pray for each um, uh, family unit represented in the you, and I pray for each local church assembly that's represented in this you of chairs, because I know there are other churches that have sent folks to us tonight, and we're, we're glad for that. So, Lord, dismiss us now with your joy and your love and your hope and your peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.